Welcome to The Talk at Revolution, where each week we explore what it looks like to find Jesus and live like Him in a practical way. At Revolution Community Church, we know that we are better together. Each week, we look to celebrate Jesus, connect with others, and contribute to the church, community, and beyond. If you'd like to connect with Revolution or take a next step, please visit us at revolutioncc.org or at our Logansport, Indiana campus, located at 3930 East Market Street. And now, we hope you are encouraged and challenged by this talk. Chapter 11, verses 12 through 19. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig leaf and a tree, seeing a, in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, "May no one ever eat fruit from you again." And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Yeah, give it up for Chelsea. Thank you, Chelsea. How we doing, church? Doing all right? What a morning already. Whew. Songs, that music gives me goosebumps. I love coming together. I love hearing God's words spoken aloud. Thanks again, Chelsea, for doing that. I got to scoot this forward because I move around a lot and I don't want to trip into it. Um, we're going to be doing that throughout the rest of this series, uh, hearing the story uh, read aloud that we're going to be talking about that week. And so if you're interested in contributing uh, in that way and being one of the people who helps read, uh, I'd, I'd love for you to come get with me uh, after the service or shoot me a message on Facebook. I'd love to talk to you about that. I want to let you know about a couple of things uh, that are happening. Uh, first of all, at the beginning of service, you saw that movie trailer for the movie I Still Believe, a story of Jeremy Camp, who's, of course, from just down the road in Lafayette, Indiana. And uh, so we're excited. We're actually being offered at the Mary Max a private showing for Revolution. And um, tickets are, for that are going to be on sale uh, right out in the lobby. I believe they're $5 for kids and six fifty for adults. I'm looking for my wife. She's in charge of this, so I want to get the details right. Because if I don't, I'm going to have to face her wrath. Where are you at, Katie? Right there. All right, cool. So, so anyway, if you would like more info about that, check out the next station, uh, and we'll show that preview again at, at the end of the service so you can hang out for a little bit and see that. And then uh, I want to celebrate today. Uh, many of you may remember Joel Larison. He has spoken on the stage multiple times, a great friend uh, and partner of Revolution. The church that he has started, which we've talked about a little bit, Bridgeway Church in Kokomo, where they're all about connecting the irreligious irreligious with the real Jesus. They are launching today as we speak. So let's just give it up because you have been a part of launching that church. 
You have been a part of bringing new life to the city of Kokomo in the name of Jesus, and that is absolutely incredible. So we're excited for our friends at Bridgeway, and we'll continue to hear from them as they uh, they uh, get going. And man, I'm just excited. If we haven't met, by the way, my name is Nate. I have the privilege and honor of being on staff here at Revolution, and uh, I'm just excited to be here. I'm excited. Because uh, it feels like, I mean, it's like 55 degrees outside. I, it feels like spring has finally legitimately come. I know we still had a couple days of cold weather this last week, but like, can I get an amen? It seems like it's spring. And I'm excited about this for two reasons. Number one, I'm originally from the South. Uh, I grew up in Alabama, spent a bunch of time on the Mexican border in Texas. I deplore cold weather, all right? I'm just going to be honest. I'm a wimp. I hate it. Uh, so I'm ready for it to be over with. Uh, but second of all, my entire life, the arrival of springtime has really led uh, to one thing, and it's meant one thing, and that is that Easter is coming. And I love Easter. Anybody else here love Easter? Yeah. Easter is the celebration of the single greatest event that has ever happened in the history of humanity. And we are so pumped for the Revolution Easter celebrations. They're going to be taking place on April 11th and 12th. Mark your calendars. Uh, you're going to be seeing and hearing more about this in the coming weeks. But I wanted to let you know about it and get those dates out there because, you know, everyone has to go to church on Easter, right? Like it's, it's kind of like an unwritten law. Everyone goes to church on Easter. So this is a great time to invite your friends to come check out Revolution. Come join us for Easter. Tell them you're saving them a seat. There's going to be three uh, gatherings over those two days. So plenty of opportunity. So we're excited for that, but I'm excited for right now this buildup to Easter called Final Week, which Anthony shared about earlier. We're in the second week of the series, and, and of course, um, the buildup to Easter is absolutely incredible. We're looking at the final week, the final seven or so days of Jesus's life here on earth, and we're looking at it specifically as the story is told in the book of Mark. So Mark, uh, Anthony shared a little bit about this, but I just want to recap. Mark is one of four books of the Bible that we call the Gospels. And the word gospel just means good news. So the gospels are these four books that are just tell us the story of Jesus' life and the good news that, uh, of life that he brings. So Mark was written by a gentleman. I made the mistake of trying to say guy and mispronounce it, so I'm just going to say gentleman. <laughs> a gentleman named John Mark, uh, hence the name Mark. And uh, John Mark was a member of the early church in Jerusalem. And he contributed to that church as a scribe or a writer uh, in this day and age. Of course, not everyone um, could read and write. It was still a relatively uncommon skill. And so he contributed to the church by being a writer. And he compiles this book, his gospel, telling the story of Jesus by interviewing um, witnesses who were there at the time, primarily Peter, who was the leader of this church, and of course was one of the 12 disciples that traveled around with Jesus. And so we're looking through this, and last week uh, we looked at, uh, in Mark chapter 10, or, or sorry, chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 11, we looked at Jesus' grand entrance back into Jerusalem. We talked about how this happened during the Passover festival, which is in early uh, April, and Passover is an important festival for the Israel, uh, the nation of Israel, the Jews at the time, because it was a time where they celebrated their coming out of Egypt deliverance uh, by God through Moses. And so, of course, at this, at this time when Jesus was alive, the nation of Israel's uh, been under occupation for a very long time. They're currently under occupation by the Romans. 
And um, they're excited because there's all these prophecies that speak of a coming king who, like Moses, is going to deliver them from bondage. And so last week, we looked at how Jesus, as he comes in, people are so excited because they think he's this coming king. And they're shouting, Hosanna, save us, glory to God. And of course, we talked about how some of the same people who were shouting Hosanna a week later would be shouting, crucify him. And we learned three key truths last week. We talked about how God's word is greater than our opinion. How the scripture, the Bible, there's a depth to it that we don't always understand. Um, that there's, there's a bigness to it that is greater than our opinions and, and the things, the kind of smaller way that we see. We talked about how Jesus is greater than religion. How Jesus didn't come to enforce a set of rules or laws, but he came to bring a whole new covenant, a whole new life to people. And then finally, we talked about this idea that being a follower of Jesus is much greater than being a fan. And we even uh, provided an opportunity for people to take a bold step and say, I want to follow Jesus. And I just want to celebrate for just a moment because last week we had 21 people stand and say, I want to make the bold choice to follow Jesus. Absolutely. Let's give it up. 21 people. And that here at Revolution, that's what we're all about. We say it every week. We're all about helping people find Jesus and live like him. So we're excited about that. We, we also introduced some ideas uh, last week that we're going to kind of see recurring through this series. Uh, we talked about, uh, just like God's word is greater than our opinions, we talked about how we can't understand everything that God does or everything that Jesus did or even just everything that's in the Bible. And that's okay. We can learn from it, but we're not ever going to fully understand until we uh, join him in heaven. We talked about how the last seven or so days, this final week of Jesus' life, is like majorly important. A lot happened, and uh, of those four gospel books, a significant uh, percentage is devoted to talking about this. So it's very important. And then we talked about this idea that everything that Jesus did was so much bigger than people could comprehend at the time or even sometimes that we can comprehend now. So let's go back to the beginning of the story that Chelsea read for us. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're in the book of Mark, chapter 11, or you can use your phone. It's also going to be up on the screens. So we're going to start reading in verse 12. Let's throw that up there. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. This happens. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached out, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. This is a little out there. Can we just, can we all admit this is a little out there? Like, um, he goes to this tree. There's no fruit. It's April. I don't know if you know much about fruit trees. There's typically not a lot of fruit on trees in April. He would have known this. But he curses the trees. And then his disciples heard him say it. I don't even know why that's there. It's just kind of like affirming. Here's the thing. We know that Jesus was God, right? Is God. And when he came to earth, he was also fully man. And I think there's one really simple truth that we can take from this story, all right? And that is, even Jesus sometimes got a little hangry. Little hangry. No, I'm totally kidding. There's, there's a lot more to this. Um, I do call this the hangry story. I think it's the best name for it. But I did some research on fig trees. Who's with me? Yeah, it's exciting, right? 
Not at all. Anyway, fig trees, did you know, did you know that fig trees are the only fruit tree in the world that we know of that the fruit, the figs, start to blossom before the leaves grow out? Interesting. The first fruits, though they're not quite ripe, blossom and start growing in late, uh, mid to late March. Of course, this was in April when this happened. The fruit is most ripe in May, and that's when it's uh, first harvested. And then there's actually a second yield, the harvest season, in late July and August. But the harvested season, like the harvest season figs that are harvested, aren't as sweet. They're not as good. And actually, they are mostly used to feed cattle. So the best fruits come early. And um, there's, there's a lot more to this, like there's a third yield that comes out of the old wood. It's, it's really kind of fascinating. For you farmers in the room, you're interested, go check out uh, some research on fig trees and all that jazz. But suffice to say, here's the thing. When Jesus goes and he sees a tree that has leaves, it should have fruit. And he knows this because it's a fig tree. But it doesn't. It doesn't have any fruit, so he curses it. And I think that there's an imagery in this. Because remember, everything that Jesus did was bigger than they could understand at the time. Bigger than it seemed. In the Old Testament, fig trees are actually mentioned quite a bit. Um, the fig tree was one of the most common fruit trees in Israel. Uh, and so they're kind of favored as the fruit of the nation. Uh, and actually, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, fig trees are used to represent like prosperity and God's favor on people. So I think that Jesus, when he refers to this, he knows that he's talking about a fig tree, but he knows that he's actually kind of talking about the nation of Israel. God's chosen people is what they're called throughout the Old Testament. But again, everything he did was bigger than it seemed. Check this out. In, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says, He himself, that's Jesus, is a sacrifice that atones or pays for our sins. And not only our sins our sins being the sins of Israel, but the sins of, read this with me, all the world. The sins of all the world. Jesus curses this tree, I think, in a way of saying, hey guys, this new life that I bring, this new fruit, it's not just for God's chosen people of Israel. It's for everyone. All people. All the nations. This new life is for all people, all tongues, everyone. And this is pretty exciting because you know what this means? It means that this new life is for you and you and you and you and me and all of us sitting in this room, this auditorium in Logansport, Indiana in 2020, almost 2,000 years later. It's pretty exciting. But here's the thing. All people also means a little bit more than that. Because it also means all those uh, other people. I think you know what I'm talking about. Those people that maybe have a little bit different shade of skin than what you have. Or different color or style of hair. People whose socioeconomic status is different than your own. People who speak and sound a little differently than you. It means those that are from different parts of the world who think and act differently than us. I mean, don't get me wrong. The United States of America, greatest nation on the planet, y'all. America. But 
The United States of America is not the new chosen people of God. New life is for all people. You know what that means? That means if you're a Democrat, that annoying Republican neighbor of yours, yeah, this new life is for him. If you're a liberal, all those conservatives saying weird stuff, yeah, it's them too. If you're a conservative, it's the liberals saying weird stuff. This new life is for all people. You know what? It's even for the people who speak out against Christianity. People in the world that would destroy us if it had the chance. This new life is for the people in the Middle East, those Muslim extremists that threaten our very existence. All the world. My friends, Jesus doesn't give us a choice of who to share this good news with. It's for everyone. And we have to reconcile in our minds that if we say we love Jesus, then we're called to love others. All the others. That frustrating coworker, that absolutely terrible driver who cut you off in traffic, whose name, by the way, may or may not be Anthony Cazello. That person with the sexual orientation that's different, that you don't quite understand. All the people. This new life is for all people, even the others. All right. That's the hangry story. It's a little, it's a little deep. We doing all right? We doing all right? The room feels a little dark right now. I think we need to lighten it up. So here's the deal. We're going we're gonna to take the hangry story we're going to put that aside for now. Let's look at the second half of this, the angry story. We've got the hangry story. Now we've got the angry story. So continuing on in Mark 11, starting at verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? There's that idea again. But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So Jesus comes up into town, rolls up into the temple as he would often. But he rolls up and he just goes into a rage, like throwing tables, driving people out. See, here's the thing. Usually, Jesus would roll up into the temple and he would start to teach. Throughout his ministry, he would go to these different places and he would go to like the town square and he would open up the Torah or, or, or prophecies and, and he would begin to read them and interpret them. He would even make these claims that most people didn't understand that he was this God that they were speaking of, this God Yahweh of the Old Testament. And then he would perform miracles to prove it. But this time, he just goes nuts. I mean, he starts flipping tables, driving people out. He comes into this temple, temple courts, which was built to be a place where people could meet with God where people could connect with God, where people could experience his, his goodness and his graciousness. And instead, he sees all these people profiting off the poor, profiting off others in the name of God. He sees what he calls a den of robbers. People getting taken advantage of. And he gets angry. 
right? He gets angry. And he says, you know what? I'm, I don't like this. He starts flipping tables. We're all right. Interestingly, we don't know exactly what this looked like, right? But there are a lot of famous paintings on this subject. Can we, can we throw these up? Uh, this first one, I love this. This is a very white and very blonde Jesus. <laughs> Which, by the way, is not at all what Jesus looked like. I mean, he's from the Middle East. He would have been dark hair, dark skin. Anyway, look at that face. I don't know if you can even see the face, but he's like about to whip this guy. It's, that face is terrifying. Let's put up the next one. I, I love this one. This one, he's straight up about to punch a guy in the face. Look at it. You've seen that look in your teenage son, right? Like, I love he's still got the holy aura, though. You know what I mean? Look, look at this next one. This was my favorite. I, I told you, I grew up in the South. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, a, like a, a neighborhood dog might stray into our yard, right? And my dad would come out the front door looking pretty much like this. This face pointing. And then he would yell something. I'm going to attempt. He would yell, skin on out of here. I have no idea how you spell this word or words, but it works. Like the dog always like, all right, I'll get out. You know what I mean? So I like to think that this is Jesus in the temple yelling, skin on out of here. <laughs> Jesus comes in and he clears the temple. And actually, uh, I told you there are four books that talk about the life of Jesus, four gospels. All four of the gospels talk about this event. Three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record almost word for word the exact same details, the things that he said, all of it. In John, uh, it's recorded a little differently, and we've actually found out through research and everything that this is because he actually, this is a different time that he cleared the temple. He actually does this twice. When he does it and in recorded in John, it's actually at the beginning of his ministry before he's gone out and picked the 12 disciples. And then in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of course, it's happening during his final week on earth, right before he's crucified. And this tells me something. The fact that he does this twice, like having the temple be clear, it's pretty important to Jesus. <laughs> Clearly, right? It's pretty important. Let's, let's try and picture a little bit better what this would look like. So Anthony talked to us. He showed us a little bit of like what the temple, how it would have been set up. And so we've got a picture we're going to throw up. Um, there was an outer courtyard called the Court of the Gentiles. And this Court of the Gentiles, the Gentiles are anyone who's not uh, lineage-wise part of the nation of Israel, like not Jewish in blood, um, but still had chosen to worship the God Yahweh of the Old Testament. And so the Court of the Gentiles was as far as those people could go. They could go into that area, but no further. From there, there's an inner courtyard, which is actually divided in two. That's kind of the bottom left of the middle and, and this was divided in two because there was a men's courtyard and a women's courtyard. They would worship separately. From there, we go into the courtyard of the priests or the court of the priests. And, of course, only priests could go into this area. But this, right in the middle, is where the altar was. And on this altar, uh, people would make sacrifices, typically a young, uh, pure-blooded animal. And that sacrifice was meant to atone or, or pay for the sins that they had committed against God since their last sacrifice. And so they would have done this uh, at least once a year, if not, you know, every few months. And then within the court of the priests, there's the temple itself. 
Now, the temple itself, only a select group of people known as the chief priests could even go into. And so this group, because of this, held like very significant political power. And we read in, in uh, I believe it's verse 17, where they begin plotting against Jesus. And then within the temple itself, there's one small room called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, which had a veil in front of it. We'll hear more about that veil in a few weeks. But it held the Ark of the Covenant, which is uh, from the story of Moses in Exodus. And this Holy of Holies was meant to, to be the very presence of God. Like, this is where God lived on earth, is kind of how they, they saw this. And no one could go into the Holy of Holies at all, except once a year, one person, the high priest, could go in and make a sacrifice on behalf of the entire nation of Israel to atone for all the sins of the nation. And it's actually interesting. When the high priest would go in, he had to wear a rope tied around him that trailed back out into the temple. Because it was believed that if God did not approve the sacrifice, he would strike him dead right there. And of course, the other priest could not go in, so they had to pull his body on out. I mean, there's no other way around it, right? Crazy stuff. So anyway, the court of the Gentiles, this is where we're kind of, this is where this story takes place, in the outer courts. And I know that on this picture, it kind of looks like there's not a lot happening, but that is not what this would have looked like. This outer courtyard is a bustling, busy place. Like, don't think quiet cathedral, think like busy marketplace. In this courtyard, there would have been people, merchants selling these animals meant to be sacrificed. And then to go along with that, there would have been these people called the money changers. You see, in order to purchase a sacrifice, you had to use this currency called the Tyrian shekel. It was commanded in the law that you would only use this Tyrian shekel to, to buy your approved sacrifice to give to God. And so the people that controlled these Tyrian shekels, they made a lot of money preying upon those that had no other choice. And um, since everyone had to use it, like, I mean, they just took advantage of a ton of people. So this outer courtyard, it's a busy place. Uh, I, uh, the best thing I could think of was, like, think of the 4-H fair. In the middle of fair week, any 4-H fans? Come on now. I can't wait for summer. <laughs> so think of the 4-H fair, minus the food trucks, of course, sadly, 4-H fair, and that's what this place would have looked like. Like, there's all these animal stalls everywhere, you know, and, and there's booths and, and tents. And, of course, none of these, you know, I, I, I have to admit, when I think about Jesus flipping over tables, I tend to think of, like, a table like this, these little white plastic things. I mean, these things are incredible. I can pick this thing up one-handed. Look at that. It's awesome. But, of course, these did not exist in 33 A.D., Mankind had not quite grasped the uh, understanding of the use of plastics. This thing's going to break just any second now. <laughs> um, so all these tables and booths would have been built out of wood and or stone. Anyone ever moved a pure wood table before? It's heavy, isn't it? <laughs> They're heavy. So all these booths, and, 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 and just to make it a little bit more perspective, like none of this got up at the end of the day and stored in the temple closet. No, no, no. This stuff would have been out all the time. So it would have been, had, it would have been built in place, strong enough to endure everything. Being out all the time in the sun, being out in crazy storms, these like crazy dust whirlwinds that would blow through. This stuff had to withstand all of it. 
So this stuff is very heavy. And the point I'm making, Jesus comes and he starts overturning tables. Guys, these tables weigh like maybe a thousand pounds or more. He's literally performing miracles as he's in this rage. Clearly this was important to him. And I think we can learn something from this clearing of the temple. In fact, I would say that we need to be clearing the temple every so often. Let's, let's dive into some other scripture. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You were not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Our body, friends, is a temple. Look at this temple. Come on now. <laughs> if you're a follower of Christ, your body is a temple, home to the Holy Spirit. That's pretty incredible. And, and we actually, uh, we have a series about three years ago called Temples where we really dove into this. Because here's the thing. If your body is a temple, that means you're responsible for that temple. So we have a series where we really deep, uh, deep dive into that. If you'd like to check that out, it's on our YouTube page. Uh, just go to our website, revolutioncc.org, click up on the YouTube link, and then uh, there's a playlist called Temples. You can check that out. But I want to focus on kind of the internal, the, the spiritual and mental aspect of this. Because you see, here's the deal. When we choose to follow Jesus, something inside of us changes. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new is here. The old us is dead, friends. It's gone. And we're a new creation, and dwelled by the Holy Spirit of God himself. That's pretty incredible. I mean, the Holy Spirit lives within me. And so here's the thing. We have to learn how to every single day believe this idea that we're called to live in life. The Spirit lives inside of us. We have life, friends. We have to get past our pride that can cause us to live in guilt over the old body. The old is dead. It's gone. And here's the thing. If we have to get past the pride, sometimes I think we have to take the tables of our lives and we have to flip them over. We have to flip over the tables in our own life and think about this a little differently. We have to, to daily clear our temple by asking God to help us get past ourselves, our pride, our, our selfish desire to, to primarily think of ourselves, and instead ask him to help us focus on loving him and loving others. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we get past our pride? I think it's actually pretty simple. I, I think that um, really it just comes down to asking God to help us think about others more. Maybe, maybe for you this looks, you know, practically like on your daily commute to work, taking some time to pray for that one coworker that you, he's just a you know, total jerk and you can't stand him. But instead asking God to pray that, you help, uh, that he helps you love him well and show him the life of Jesus. Maybe it looks like uh, choosing to flip the table and, and serve your spouse who's fixed dinner by cleaning the table and, and doing the dishes and letting them have a little bit of a break. Maybe it's taking something that normally bothers you or that you find you complain about and flipping the script um, 
You want to have an older car? I'm, I'm pointing at myself right now. Old and busted. That's what I'm talking about. It's easy to complain about an old and busted car and when you see people driving around with new cars. But you know what? My car gets me where I need to go. I've never had any problems with it. Maybe, maybe where you live has never quite reached that like dream home status. You know what I'm talking about. But it still keeps you warm and dry and safe when you sleep at night. Friends, let's flip the table and choose to have a better viewpoint. Let's choose to believe who God says we are and what he has for us. And it can be a little scary sometimes to flip over the tables in your life, but here's the thing. We have hope. There's a scripture. If you know it, read it with me. It's Philippians 4.13. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. I love this verse. This is like one of my life verses. I, I, I've read this and said this over my life numerous times. And, and a lot of people know this verse. It's very popular. I see it at the gym. Like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I mean, I don't see it at the gym, clearly. But others do. <laughs> but here's the thing. Do you know the man that wrote this, Paul, missionary, in the name of Jesus, he wrote this from prison. And not like a nice prison. Like, I'm not, I'm not talking about the Cass County Jail, you know, being expanded. In the name of Jesus, we're going to plant the first revolution jail campus in a year, year and a half. We're so excited about that. I'm not talking about that. No, no, no. He was in prison in Rome. And this prison, in the best of times, he would have been sitting and sleeping in mud right next to a toilet, which wasn't a toilet. It was just more mud with all the things that would normally be in a toilet. He'd be barely getting enough food to survive. And yet he writes this. And, and not just this. Let's put the next verse. Yeah, the verse before. I love this. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Friends, this sounds like the words of a man who's learned how to flip over the tables in his life, who chooses to believe the truth of life when the Holy Spirit is in him through Jesus. Friends, let's flip over the tables in our life. Let's flip over the tables and choose to believe who God says we are. Life with Jesus, I promise you, it's better than anything this world has to offer. Anything. This world has a lot to offer, though, doesn't it? We think that sometimes. We try to, we try to find happiness and, and contentment in the world. But I think when we look around the world, the truth is, we don't see a lot of life, do we? We see darkness. We see despair. There's a lot of that in the world. And here's the deal. Jesus rolled up into the temple and he saw darkness and despair, and he got angry. Friends, I think we need to look around at the world around us, and we need to get angry. We need to get angry that people are living in the darkness, and the darkness is trying desperately to win. There are people going hungry, not able to feed their families. People who can't afford to keep the heat on or pay their rent and end up homeless. Friends, there are people living in addiction in this community, 
to chemicals and drugs. There are children living in desperation with no hope. It makes me angry. I believe it should make you angry. Even if you're not a follower of Christ, I think it's easy to look around and get angry. If we're called to love others, we should get angry. And, and, and I know we don't, we don't need any help getting angry, right? We all have plenty of stuff we're angry at. But I think we need to learn how to get angry at the right things. You know, we, I spoke just a few weeks ago about being slow to anger. But I think when it comes to people living in darkness, we need to get angry. I think rather than getting angry at a Facebook post or at a referee at a basketball game or a political statement, maybe we should get angry about people who are being damned to an eternal hell, about lives that are at stake. Men in the room, I want to talk to you for just a moment. I had, uh, I had the genuine pleasure of spending most of this week with just the most incredible group of men that I know uh, from this church, our, our pastors, Anthony and Jeff, and our Next Steps director, Brian. We went to this church planning conference, and uh, man, we had an, just an incredible time. Uh, had a lot of fun, and I'm not going to lie, as when a group of men get together, we did a lot of stupid things, but <laughs> there's some stories we could share. But, but we also just had wonderful, incredible time of speaking into each other's lives, and speaking of the life of this church, the future and the vision of this church that Jesus has pressed on us. And I had a, just an amazing time of getting to experience what it's like to be with a great group of guys. But that's not the situation for most men in our world. And it made me start thinking about what, what men around the world are experiencing. Because you see, the world today has this image of what a man should be. And it's absolute crap, y'all. It totally is. The world today says a man should be lazy. He should think only of himself. He should care about nothing other than having sex and just do whatever it takes to make him feel good. Whether it's pouring poison into his stomach or abusing a woman or a child verbally, mentally, or even physically. It's darkness, friends. And you know what? It's even worse than that because if we don't do something about this now, the world of tomorrow will be far worse. We have young men all around us who have no father figure showing them how to live as men of God. Young men in our schools and in this community who have no one showing them the light of Jesus. Friends, we have young men and students in this church today that need you to be a man and step up and be a small group leader and speak the truth of who God is into their life. Speak the truth of who they are in God into their lives. I have two little boys. Two little boys, Barrett and Griffin. And I thank God every single day for the honor of being their daddy. And I want good for my boys, I do. I want, I want them to grow up to be little Star Wars nerds like me. And man, I want them to, to get excited about cheering on Alabama football on Saturdays. I want them to grow up and find jobs and careers that fulfill them and where they feel like they can show the love of Jesus to people. I want them to, to grow up and marry women who love Jesus above everything else. 
But above everything, above anything else in this world, all I want for my little boys is for them to grow up understanding what it means to be a man who is beloved by God Almighty. What if a generation of men today stepped up to shape the next generation of men for tomorrow? Friends, imagine the world that could exist a generation from now if we decided as men all around to say, we're not going to believe this junk that the world is throwing at us. We're going to believe what God says about what a man is. Imagine the light that could shine in this community if we as a church decided to believe what God says about us rather than the lies the world has to tell. What if we decided to say, we know where truth comes from and we're going to take that truth and we're going to speak life into the world unabashedly, unashamedly, unafraid of anything the world has to throw at us. Because friends, the world has nothing to throw at you. The battle's already won. We serve the almighty God of the universe. What if we, just like Jesus, decided to get angry and do something about it? Friends, if you're a follower of Christ, Jesus gave us a simple commandment. We're supposed to go. Go into all the world, making disciples, preaching the good news of Jesus. We're supposed to go. Not wait. Not wait for them to come to us. Not not cower in fear. Friends, we're at war. All right? We're at war. The darkness is trying everything they can. But the light will not overcome the darkness. We have to go and speak truth, speak life into the world. The battle's already won. The world needs Jesus. They're waiting for us to tell them. What is that battle that God wants you to fight today? It's already won. All you got to do is go fight it. What are the tables in your life that you need to overturn? What do you need to get angry about today? You, my friend, the Bible calls us royal priests of the holy nation of God. Let's go shine the light. Let's speak the truth of life into people. Friends, we're going to take some time this morning just to, to rest in this. We're going to sing a song, and um, the band's going to sing this over us. I'd love to give you the opportunity to just take a moment to surrender. God has something for you today, I promise you, if we would just stop and listen. And as the ushers come and, and take down the podium and stuff, I just want to encourage you, this whole room is available today. You need to have some one-on-one time with God. If you need to sit down and turn around in your chair and make it an altar, then you do that. If you need to come up to the front of the stage and pray, you do that. If you need to speak or pray with someone, our prayer room is open, we would be honored to pray with you today. The back of the room is available. This whole room is available. There's no rules in this mess. (laughs) Friends, what is God calling you to today? And how can you make room in your life for him to move. Let's choose to surrender together.
Father God, Father God, I thank you for the truth that we are loved. We are good and loved because you are good and you are love. God, I know that there are battles to be fought. There are things to get angry over, God, because lives are at stake. And you've called us to go. So God, would you speak to us now? Speak to us the name of the person that we need to talk to this week. The name of the person that we need to invite to church. The the name of the person that we just need to share an encouraging scripture with. God, the name of the person that we need to speak life into in the name of Jesus. God, give us courage. Give us boldness. You've already won the battle. Nothing can stop us. What can stand against us? God, we love you. We thank you. We surrender to what you have. We ask you to come in and speak to us today.